Acts chapter 1, verse 12 and 14, 12 through 14. Some of you wives, kids, your dads are coming back, your husbands are coming back this weekend. Maybe give us a report on how, they're, how they turned out. Maybe like, oh, yeah, praise God, or eh, maybe send them back for a little longer. Just... It's good. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. This is right after Jesus ascends, and he tells the disciples to kick it in a room and wait. For the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, even as this group of people was waiting in a room for the power of the Holy Spirit to come, so we wait in the room that we are gathered in waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall afresh upon us. We ask that as we open up your word that you would cause our hearts to come alive to it. We know that your word is already alive. It is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to uh, pierce between the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Your word has all that it needs by the power of the Holy Spirit to step into our lives and to rearrange the furniture of our hearts. So I guess the only thing left to ask, Lord, is that you, by your spirit, would cause us to be submissive to your word. That where there's deadness or whether there's a wall set up or whether there are any barriers set up in our minds or maybe we're just distracted or going through a lot today, whatever the case may be, we appeal to your mercy and to your grace that you would visit us this morning through, the, through your very word, that you'd speak to us, that you would sanctify us according to the truth, that we would leave here changed, not by a lecture, not by points of reference, not even by words on a page, but by the living word of the living God. You are consuming fire. Burn away all the dross and all of the stuff that we came in here with that we don't need. Let us leave this place, Lord, set on fire by the Holy Spirit of power. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this is a really, really simple topic, I think. Uh, my my one point, this is all I want to do out of, this, out of this study, is to highlight 
the importance of prayer in the life of the Christian and in the church, the body of Christians, and how the Holy Spirit interacts with that. I just want to touch on that. I just want us to leave with our appetites wedded for the things of God. Just to highlight the importance of prayer in the life of the Christian and the church and how the Holy Spirit works in and through that for our joy and for God's glory. This, this might be a short, shorter sermon than usual because the point is simple, but we know how those predictions go. It might be the longest sermon ever too, so whatever. <clears throat> But before, before we read the text that we read, there was all of chapter one, right? And as I read, Jesus left the disciples with a clear command. Jesus just rose from the dead. He just changed everything for the disciples. The disciples now are more excited than they've ever been. And Jesus then tells them in, one, uh, in a few sentences, it's better for me, he says this in John, it's better for me to go. I know you want me to be here. It's better for me to go because I'm going to send you somebody. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to be with you. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, you shall receive power when that somebody comes upon you. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so right now, where, we are, where we're camped out in this text, in the upper room, what's going on is that the disciples have just seen things that have blown their mind. They came from despair and disappointment. Their Messiah was crucified. They thought that was the end of the movement, that one that they had high hopes for. And all of a sudden, he appears to them in bodily form. Not only does he appear to them, but he walks with them, he talks with them. He blesses them. He ministers to them and with them for 40 days. They are, at the, they are on cloud nine. So they make their way to this room, the upper room, and they don't even know what to do. So they just sit there and they begin to pray fervently, it says. They begin to pray fervently. Notice they're not just praying the way that I sometimes pray. You know, there's different types of prayer. There's like the prayers that we just kind of chuck up when we, we're running out of time and we just want to do our deed. And then there's the prayer that you pray with praying. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but in my low moments when I'm praying for somebody and I fall into that routine of prayer, you know, we have the reality stickers that we we sometimes hand out during seasons, and the vision behind those reality stickers is that you see someone on the highway with a sticker, you know that's your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ. You begin to, begin to pray for them. Maybe someone you don't even know, just begin to intercede for them. And so you could be on the highway driving, someone's praying for you. You don't even know it. That's a vision we had for that. We wanted people praying for each other outside of the building, interceding. But there will be times or I'm driving on the highway, I see a sticker, and my mind is just elsewhere, you know? I'm like thinking about that task I have before me, or I, I went through some difficult thing, or I'm, I'm just not there, I'm in the flesh. I see a sticker, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, Lord, thank you, bless them, you know, just help them drive there. <laughs> you ever find yourself falling into prayer that way? Just like, I know I gotta do this, like in your head, I know I gotta do this, but I'm just not feeling it. Lord, bless them, help me do Come on, help, maybe go. <laughs> Throw in a verse for good measure. There's, there's that type of praying. 
And then there's what we see in verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. In other words, they just saw Jesus rise from the dead. He's telling them to wait for something big to happen. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And now they're camped out in a little, just a little room, maybe in a circle, looking at just in the zone, praying. There's a buzz in the air. There's this weighty sense of anticipation, like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or even in the next few minutes, but Jesus told us to gather and to just wait on him and to pray. Okay, okay. And there's, there's this, just this buzz and this anticipation in the air that God is going to move on their behalf. Who knows what he's going to do, but he's going to do something, and it's going to be wild. That kind of praying. James says a similar thing when he speaks about Elijah, right? In the book of James, he describes Elijah, and he, say, he starts off really funny. He says, Elijah is a man just like us. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Read the Old Testament and see some of the things that Elijah did. He was wild, walking in signs and wonders that would blow your mind. And James says, Elijah was a man just like us, comma, but he prayed. And literally, in the original language, it says something to this extent, uh, this effect. He prayed with prayer. He prayed with praying. It's like James is trying to use every word in his vocabulary to speak about what I think uh, the, the, the Leonard Ravenhill used to describe as an unction. It's this burden that rises up in your heart when you are praying for something. It's not just an in-passing, like, oh, Lord, okay. God bless. It's this, it's this like, oh, it's this all-consuming obsession, knowing that somehow the answer to that obsession is directly correlated to the prayers that you're praying. James would have said, right, we have not because we ask not. There is this incredible, otherworldly, unbelievable dynamic between us prayer and a sovereign God, that God is in sovereign control over the universe, not a molecule goes anywhere outside of his sovereign power, and yet we also see in the scriptures that we are somehow able to move his sovereign hand by our prayer. Unbelievable. For the person that understands what they've been brought into when they start praying, they go from popcorn prayers, tossing them out the window at passerbyers too. Oh, a burden, this, this uncontrollable unction that consumes you as if you feel like you've been invited into something otherworldly and mysterious and supernatural. And here they are with a buzz in the air and anticipation of what Jesus is going to do. And they don't even know, I don't even know if he told them what to do other than wait, but they're praying. They're just praying. What are they praying for? I don't know. But soon enough, soon after they're praying, we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, presumably still praying, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Jesus sent the Spirit. 
He sends the Holy Spirit and the church, the, the one church existing at that moment begins to pray in other tongues. The text tells us that they were praying in tongues and it was being interpreted, understood by all of these people outside. People from uh, uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, uh, Mesopotamians, Cappadocians, Pontus, Asia, all of these nations coming together onto this, uh, into this town, encountering a bunch of Galileans praying in the spirit. And the text tells us that they understood what they were saying in each of their languages, their home languages, and what they understood was that these disciples were glorifying the Lord, glorifying and giving praise to God and speaking about his amazing deeds. In Genesis, there's a similar situation where all the people of the world are gathering together to uh, speaking the same language, unified as a people, one nation, and in their unity, in their sinful-hearted unity, in their common language, they band together to erect a tower of Babel in order to achieve something on their own. When the people in Genesis have a common language, a language that can be understood by everyone around them, they use it because of their sick, inward, twisted heart for their end goal and their personal ambition and their own sick and twisted hearts. What we see in the day of Pentecost is a reversal of that curse, right? After Babel, he scatters them, he confuses their languages. There's all of these languages in the world. Fast forward, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, everyone can understand each other, but, but their hearts are now tuned to the, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a reversal of the curse in a prayer meeting in the middle of nowhere. So the church is birthed out of a prayer meeting. It's by the hand and by the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon those people in a prayer meeting on the day of Pentecost. The church isn't just birthed in a prayer meeting, but we see throughout the duration of Acts that the church is actually sustained by and moved forward in mission through prayer and prayer meetings by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1, we see Peter and John immediately making their way to the temple, the hour of prayer. We see it peppered throughout the, the, the Acts of the Apostles, this book. The people are always just in this spirit of prayer. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, uh, the, the disciples, the apostles are devoted to prayer and the word. And so they need to raise up these administrators to take care of all of this stuff, feeding the poor and taking care of the widows. So they raise up Stephen and a group of other people. And it says that they lay hands on them and pray for them to be charged with those tasks. In Acts chapter 7, verse 59 through 60, Stephen is uh, stoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he's being persecuted and killed for his faith, he's praying to God with his eyes wide open in hardship. Acts chapter 8, verse 15, people are praying for one another to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 9, verse 17, there is a prayer by Ananias for Saul to receive his sight and to be saved. In Acts chapter 9, verse 40, we see Peter raising Tabitha up from the dead. 
in prayer by the power of God. Acts 10.9, Peter is praying on a housetop in his uh, in intimate prayer with the Lord. Chapter 12, verse four, uh, 5, fervent prayer is now being made for Peter because he's in prison. An angel busts in, opens the doors, lets Peter loose. Prayers are being prayed and prayers are being answered. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Again, they're gathering together for prayer. Find that interesting. That it's not something that they start off initially with. Okay, now we're an organic movement. There's like 10 people, 100 people in this upper room. Let's pray. And then as they grow into a giant church, they stop and start to depend on other things. They never seem to stop praying. They never start to depend on programs or numbers or groupthink or strategy or leadership tips or self-help books, or anything. They always seem to be in this habitual place of fervent prayer, praying with praying. And the list goes on. Throughout the book of Acts, the disciples do a lot of things, but one thing you always see them doing is praying. The Holy Spirit births the church in a prayer meeting. He sustains a church and he moves a church through prayer. You could say that the Holy Spirit breathes life into the church. We see that in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is that one who comes upon us in power. He breathes life into the church. But the prayer meeting seems to be the lungs of the church by which that breath is pushed through. It's the kiln by which God exercises his power people of God praying. And why is it the disciples were so obsessed with such a thing? They did a lot of other things. They did a lot of wonderful things. It seems that the disciples who were closest to Jesus saw and deemed most potent in the life of Jesus Christ himself a prayer life. Meaning that when the disciples saw Jesus, they must have seen something in Jesus to make them want to pray. When he was choosing his disciples, he sat down and prayed. When he was being tempted, he was in a spirit of prayer. When he came to the cross in Mark 14, 32, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed Mark chapter 14 tells us that he took all 12 of his disciples, came to the gate of Gethsemane, left all 12 there, told them, hey, pray without ceasing. Then he took three of his close ones, went a few feet, started a stop there, said, hey, pray without ceasing. And then he left them and he went off into his other corner and he began praying without ceasing. And then he comes back, he trots back and he finds them all asleep. They must have been mesmerized by his tenacity in prayer. They must have been romanticized by his prayer life with the Father. John chapter 17, in what's often called the high priestly prayer, we see Jesus breaking off to pray. He starts praying for himself, that he'll obey God's mission. 
then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for everybody else. We don't have time to read through it, but it is one of the most majestic prayers in all of the Bible. When you go home today or tomorrow, crack open your Bible to John chapter 17 and read Jesus praying. You know who he's praying for? He's praying for you. Meaning that in the times where we are prayerless and we feel guilty, we can look above at the one who intercedes for us, even when we're prayerless. This pattern of prayer in the life of Jesus must have so impacted the disciples because the only thing that we see recorded that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them was to pray, Luke chapter 11. They might have asked other things, but we don't see that recorded in the scriptures. All that we see recorded is that they asked him to pray, which baffles my mind if you look at the life of Jesus Christ. Because he did some crazy things, right? He rose, he rose people from the dead. Rised? Raised. Raised. Spirit of God. He raised people from the dead. He healed paralytics on the spot. Blind people, see, digs down, takes mud, throws it on people's faces, they're healed. Like, well, why, Jesus? I don't know. He can do whatever he wants. He would walk in miracles like it was nothing to him. Of course it was nothing. He's God in human flesh. He did so much stuff. If I were there, I would have been like, Jesus, teach me that trick. I want to raise people from the dead. Teach me how to, uh, teach me how to pray for the sick. Teach me how to like, lay hands on someone and they're just well. Jesus, remember that like, wedding party at Cana with the wine trick thing? Teach me that. I would have gone, gone any other place than prayer, I think. But the disciples, having walked with him for three years, must have seen the quality of his life and the intensity of his prayers and the relationship that he had with his father in that prayer to say, I don't want any other thing. I want to be taught by the Messiah how to pray. And you know what's wild about that? He taught him how to pray. And they also begin to walk in every other thing that he did. They didn't ask him, I think, to raise the dead, but Peter rose the dead. They didn't ask for healing tricks, but they walked in gifts of healing. They didn't ask for special boldness to go out and preach the gospel and have some people saved and, and to be able to have that boldness without timidity, but it happened. All they asked for was for prayer. Jesus taught them, and it opened up a world, an otherworldly world. Jesus teaches them, and then in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he tells them, pray always, and do not lose heart. That can be a very difficult thing for us to do, to pray today for the things that we need to pray for and not lose heart, to pray and perhaps not think that some of our prayers are being answered and to lose heart. To pray and to wonder if there's anything that's going on or being affected by our prayers and not even knowing if we're ever going to see the answer and to keep going ahead, praying without ceasing. And this is why Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit. He sends us the Holy Spirit, among many other things, to help us pray. The Holy Spirit interacts with our prayer in a special and very supernatural way so that we can pray as we were called to by the Lord. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, and Jude chapter 1, verse 20 both say the same thing. They command us to pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. We're to pray in the Holy Spirit. Here's, what that mean, here's why we need that, and I'll explain what that means to pray in the Holy Spirit. Because ask yourself this question. What are some of the reasons that we don't pray? There are seasons in my life, there are times where I just don't feel like praying. There are times in my life where I am dry in my soul. And the best thing that I can muster up is, Lord, bless him. What, if we're to dig deep into our heart where it's really uncomfortable and dark and gritty and musty, what would some of the reasons be that we pull out? Why don't we pray? We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. There's supernatural power in prayer. Why don't we do it as often as we do? I don't know what the reason is for you, but I know what some of them are for me. One of them is sometimes I'm just lazy. I know what I'm supposed to do and I don't do it because I'm lazy. We tend to be lazy when our lives are not filled with a driving purpose. You ever, ever feel that? Like if there's a season in your life where there's so much exciting stuff happening, you're just like, ah. But then if there's a lull, like maybe it's a bad summer, you're sitting at home just drinking tea and you got a cold, you can't leave the house, and you're like, ah. Uh. No, I'm the only one that gets a cold. Man, maybe you should pray for me to be healed. Laziness often results from a lack of empowerment because it's, it's actually quite easy to pray when you have a driving purpose in life to pray for. It's exciting to pray when you see big things happening. Laziness often results from a lack of empowerment. You know, we read the scripture in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When you're praying in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit takes care of your laziness by giving you a grand view of what's going on around you. Meaning this, there, it's okay to pray for our own little things, but God wants, us to give, God wants to give us a panoramic view that goes beyond our own lives. He wants to give us a grand view of the kingdom of God and what's going on in the world around us to pray for so that we're not stuck just praying for our own simple needs all the time. Simple needs and our personal, personal needs is not enough fuel and fire to get you through this life. And let me tell you this, it's okay to pray for your needs. Paul did, he prayed for that thorn in his side. It's okay to pray for your needs because God is concerned with your needs. If God cares about sparrows falling out of the tree, he certainly cares about his sons and his daughters. God cares about the silly things in your life. He cares about your drama. He cares about your turmoil. He cares about your bad day. He cares about the time you stubbed your toe. He cares about your cancer. He cares about your sickness. He cares about the, uh, the problems with your business. He cares about your family that's falling apart. He cares about your little headache. He even cares when there's nothing wrong with you and you're just whining. So it's not that he doesn't care about the stuff going on in your life, it's that he doesn't want you to be stuck in a perpetual cycle of navel-gazing in your prayer life. He wants to excite you for the things that can happen if his people would simply pray. He wants to give you 
a panoramic view of the spiritual realm and to know that you as his son and his daughter can tap into things like that. He wants to whet your appetite for the things unseen. He wants to burst your faith open. He wants to stretch you beyond your comfort zone. He wants you to pray for things that you would never be comfortable praying for. He wants you to be naive in your prayer. Silly, like a little schoolboy. Just, Lord, just save the whole ocean, or I don't know. Just, ah! I've found in my own experience that when my eyes have been lifted off of myself to pray for the things of God, somehow all of those little things in my life get worked out. God is so kind. You don't have to worry about the clothes you're wearing or what you're going to eat. Your father knows what you have need of even before you ask. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things shall be added unto you. God is so kind, but he wants us to see what prayer is capable of. He wants us to taste of its potency. Another problem that we may sometimes have is unbelief. Unbelief usually comes in people who have been disappointed enough times to be very discouraged in their faith. Perhaps you've prayed for a few people and your prayers have not gone the way that you want, and you know what that does to your soul? Like, it's discouraging. It's like, why? Sometimes out of that, we hang on to those things, and we steep ourselves in unbelief. Unbelief usually results from a lack of enlightenment, because we have not been gripped. We have not been allowed to see, to be enlightened to reality. We're instead swayed by our circumstances. Ephesians 1.18, though, says that the Holy Spirit of wisdom causes the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. Sometimes we can be too busy. That can actually be a good thing. We're, we're successful. We're being faithful. Life is good. And the more successful and prosperous you are, the less you find yourself being dependent on God for help. That comes from pride. The Holy Spirit handles our pride by giving us more of Jesus. Another one might be just pure oppression by the devil. Some of you perhaps want to engage in prayer, but Satan hates your prayer. He hates when the church prays. He would love for us to get caught up in every other thing other than prayer. He would love it if we just busied ourselves. If we just got busy and we just got stuff done. We just did things. As long as we weren't talking to God. Some of you are feeling oppressed by the devil this morning. One of the best ways... To fight against that is to exalt Jesus in the face of opposition. One of my favorite uh, analogies is uh, more of a parallel is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 where the people of Israel are terrified of going into this battle and they're outnumbered. They're about to be demolished and annihilated. And God tells uh, King Jehoshaphat to go into battle, not with uh, the front line of warriors, but to send 
the worshipers. So he sends a bunch of worshipers to sing and to praise God and to declare his fame. And as they are worshiping the Lord, this incredible thing happens. The Spirit of God begins to thwart the enemy and the enemy's schemes and confuse the enemy. And he brings them a tremendous victory. We see parallels with that. That one of our, our, one of, one of our most deep pocket weapons in spiritual battle not against each other, right? No battle against each other, but against spiritual beings, against Satan and against demons, is to exalt Jesus Christ in those moments of oppression. These are some of the ways that the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. He overcomes these obstacles in our prayer life so that we can jump into the deep end. He empowers us. He enlightens us. He exalts Jesus before us so that as we're praying, we are being dictated by the Holy Spirit. What it means then to be praying in the Spirit means that you are no longer praying according to your own will. You're no longer praying according to your own ambitions. You're no longer praying according to your own wants and desires. Not that those are bad, but now you are tapped into the will of God through the Holy Spirit. And you are praying in submission to the Holy Spirit's will. Well, what's the Holy Spirit most passionate about? He's passionate about Jesus. He's passionate about holiness. He's passionate about mission. So in the very least, when someone is filled with the Spirit and praying in the Spirit, some of those things you will find being exuded out of you in prayer. It's the type of thing that could cause somebody to change from one prayer to another. Looking out over the ocean or looking out from a a, a lookout point onto your city and being disgusted by it. Saying, God, I hate this place. I can't wait to leave this. Nothing's working out for me. Nothing is going my way. I hate it here. I want to move on to the next place. I want to move on to the next season. This type of thing, to be praying in the Spirit, is the type of uh, thing that can change a prayer like that to a prayer like, Lord, burden my heart for those people. Lord, I am crushed with longing because I know that they are entrapped by sin that crushes me because I love your holiness and I hate my sin. Have mercy, God. It's a type of thing that could cause a Christian to say, I am so enamored by the glory and the holiness and the beauty of Jesus Christ that I desperately want everybody in this town to know him. It's a type of thing that will plunge a saint into a deep place of intercession. Holy Spirit. And even when you don't even know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit steps in on that too. Romans chapter 8 verse 26 tells us, tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us to pray when we don't even know what to pray for. Do you, what? Some people think it's tongues, that he gives us these deep groanings to pray, and then out of that comes words that he's giving us to give to God that are answered. That oh, blows my mind. Other people think that it's maybe English words that God is just forming or uh, impressing upon our heart uh, things to pray, almost like a prophetic utterance, so we voice it by faith and he answers it. Do you see this crazy circle? 
God has a will that is good and he wants you to pray it and if you would just pray it, he would do it. And even if you don't know what to pray, he gives you the words to pray, to pray to him that he will do when you pray it to him. What exactly are we doing? We're having fun. Because the God of heaven and earth is moving mountains for his own glory and he saw fit out of the joy in his own heart for his people to say, hey, as I'm doing this, why don't you ride shotgun with me? He's so kind. God certainly wants us to pray, but here's why we should want to pray. We only have a certain amount of years to live. For some of us, it may seem a long time, but those years are fleeting and they will go by in a blink of an eye. Our life is fleeting meaning that everything in our life should count for something. And every decision that you make in this life will either be fruitful for the kingdom or it will be dead weight. Our decisions must be birthed in prayer. Our lives, our relationships, of which we have many, will either be fruitful for the kingdom or they will simply take up space. You could point to everything that your life touches in this life and say the same thing. What is my life going to count for? When I come to face Jesus Christ on that day, as all of us who believe in his name will one day, what am I going to have to show for it? Not for salvation, right? We're saved by grace. But am I going to be able to look back on my life with joy and say, yes, I spent it well, and I was well spent for the glory of God. Not to impress Jesus. Not to make him happy with you. He's happy with you, man. Lady. (laughs) But if I am going to spend the next 50, 60, 70, 20, 10, 15 years of my life in this place, in this city, with all of the struggles that we have, all the suffering that we have, all of the turmoil and all of the things going around us, if I am devoting the next however many years long to that instead of being with Jesus right now, I don't want to waste it. And you don't want to waste it either. The fact is, our church needs the prayers of the saints. You can think all you want on Sunday morning when we roll in here with beautiful clothes and smiles on our faces and we're walking with our lattes down the aisle and we're worshiping and we're cheering and we're eating taco truck meals and we're screaming at each other. But I know you and you know me and we're broken. Life isn't as good as we thought it was. Our church desperately needs prayer. Our men need to be freed from addictions. Our women need the comfort and the presence of the living God. Our kids need prayer. Any of you have kids? Your children need parents who will intercede for them daily. When I was 12, 13 years old, I remember stumbling through the house 
finding the middle bedroom door shut, and I heard this voice inside, and it was my mom, and she was making this noise, and I came up to the door, and I put my ear to the door, and I was trying to listen to her, and she was intensely just blurting out these words that I could not understand. It wasn't English. I don't think it was another language. She didn't speak any other language except maybe like Spanish or Spanglish. It's one of those. She was speaking something that I couldn't understand, and it was so intense and I got kind of scared, so I walked off. I came back later, and she was still there an hour later. I knock on the door, I open the door, and she meets me at the door. And tears are running down her face. And she's trying to pick herself up, and she's like, hey, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Wanted some lemonade? I don't know what she said. <laughs> well, oh, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just hanging out. So I leave. She closes the door again, goes straight back into it. She prays for an hour. Walks out of the door. When she's gone, I, I finagle my way into the middle bedroom to look at what in the world she is doing and why she sounds so weird. And I look straight ahead, and there's a piece of paper nailed to the wall. And I walk up to the paper, and I see a list of names, and my name is on there. My mom was praying for me an hour every day for almost a decade in tears and anguish and hope and faith. And for 10 years, her prayers weren't answered, man. I can't imagine what she must have felt like during year eight, rolling into that prayer closet and praying for God to change the life of her deadbeat son. But he did. And one by one, her prayers changed all three of her wayward children, even though it took a decade. There's something about the prayer of a parent. There's something about the prayer of a mom. I'm convinced that Satan is terrified by the prayers of a desperate mother. Will you pray for your kids? If you don't have any Kids, maybe pray for someone else who has kids. If you don't know anyone who has kids, maybe pray for me. I don't know. <laughs> Take all I can get. Our marriages need prayer. Our world needs prayer. Santa Barbara needs prayer. Carpinteria. Ventura. And as if that weren't enough, book of Revelation tells us that our prayers are like golden bowls of incense to the Lord. It's the soothing, pleasurable thing to God. He just loves when his people pray, and he finds it joyful to answer their prayers. I really... I really believe that we are on the verge of a powerful move of God in our lifetime here. I really believe it. I feel that buzz sometimes of anticipation that something could happen at any time. I, I believe it. And I know some of you do too. But for whatever reason, God has saw fit 
to choose to use the prayers of his people before he acts on their behalf. Why does he do it? I don't know. The only thing that I could possibly pin it on is his love for his kids. Hop in the, sh- hop in the driver's seat with me, son. Hop in the driver's seat with me, daughter. I'm going to move mountains, but you got to ask me to do it first. Are there any mountains in your life today? Anything wrong going on in your family, in your relationships, with your, uh, in your places of vocation and work and recreation? Anything that needs to be met by the powerful hand of the living God? You have been assigned a task. And you don't need to quit your job at the Starbucks, at the gas station, at the t- toilet store place. To become a clergy or to be a pastor or to be a full-time missionary somewhere in order to be effective for the kingdom of God. That is one of the most destructive things that I've ever heard told in a church. There are those of you who will be called to some of those things. But 95% of you are called here now. And you might not have a skill in the world. You might not have the, uh, the gift of speaking. You might not have the gift of administration. You might not even know how to tie your shoes. But can you cry for people? Can you just meet with God and develop and adopt a burden that he has given to you and just talk to him about it? Gosh. If we did that, I don't think we'd be able to handle the effect. As we worship this morning, as we begin to sing songs of faith and exalt Christ over and above all things, let's just ask him to teach us to pray. That's all the disciples ever wanted to do, and they changed the world. Let's ask him to pray. Heavenly Father, you're so kind and merciful and good that you who hold the world together, the universe together by the word of your power, would see fit to let your children, who often screw up many things, we do many things wrong, you see fit to involve us in your kingdom work. Lord, we repent of our prayerlessness for skimming through the New Testament, through the scriptures, and trying to make all of those things about something else when we see clearly that all that the people of God were obsessing over was speaking to you. I repent of my prayerlessness, we repent of our prayerlessness, and we ask that by a powerful move of the Holy Spirit, you would come upon us and you would give us prayers to pray that will change the coastline and the landscape forever to do things that legislation and politicians and kings and earth movers and people movers could only dream of doing. We want to pray with power. We want to pray fervently. We want to pray with prayer. But we can't do that apart from your Holy Spirit. So come upon us today and make us hungry for more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.